Okie dokie. Uh, it's been a long time since we've given love to AG1, drinkag1.com slash surf. Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually um, been been pounding my AG1 since we got back from uh, our trip. I forgot to bring my little AG1 travel packs with me, which is not like me. I usually bring those with me. But uh, I've got pro move. Yeah. I keep like a five pack in my suitcase just full time. And that if I ever forget it, I could just rely on those. So I had those, but I agree. I forgot to actually bring a proper supply as well. Well, look, the thing about AG1 is that it's, first of all, for a guy like me, who's a simpleton, AG1 is pretty simple. You pour the powder, mix it up, pound it. It's easy to do. It tastes great. And of course, the upside is you get all of these incredible nutrients and vitamins. Uh, It's all organically sourced. It's a wonderful product by um, a wonderful company. And look, people around the world are celebrating the goodness of AG1. And you and I are just uh, two of those men amongst men, people amongst people who are partaking in the wonderment of AG1. It's been nice to watch the ride, right? Like, We've been on it for a couple of years, but in the last couple of years, there's been New York Times articles written about the robust growth of the company and so many other kind of celebrities and notable health people in the health world who um, endorse the product and use the product and all that. So it's been really cool to see them grow and uh, have all that stuff kind of validate what you and I have already known. So, Yeah, one, one sort of, uh, you know, I guess, um, I guess is it mimicry is a sign of... Um adulation or what's the what's the phrase um uh, uh, the yeah flattery form of my flattery. wife's correcting me <laughs> yeah my wife's correcting me and i bring that up because i see recently that laird hamilton has come out with his own green drink which is basically like hey let's cut into ag1's market share yeah i know i saw that too people have been sending me sending that to me uh last act of a desperate stock price essentially is i think what's going on for them I don't know. I haven't, I haven't checked his stock, but uh, yeah, it's look, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Laird. I'm just saying AG one, we love it and we will drink it. And, um, stuff's, it's just, it's just part of my plan. Yeah. You know, my morning plan. Yeah. I need to get in some, some prayer. I need to get in some meditation. I need to get in a workout. I need to get in my AG one. And, um, all of that stuff is just part of my daily routine. It's just so natural. It's the easiest part of it. Cause it takes 20 seconds and it's delivered to your door. So for anybody else who wants kind of whole body vitality and nutrition in one scoop of powder mixed with water, um, go to the website, do all the research on your own. Don't just take our word for it, but it's drinkag1.com slash surf is our portal um, that supports us when you use that. So thank you for that. Supporting our sponsors supports us. So, and the other one that's uh, become a part of our summertime life is driftline.co. Yeah, Driftline, uh, part of my summertime life, but also part of my wintertime life. Look, when I go to Hawaii, I'm bringing my Drifties, my Driftline board shorts. They have a half millimeter wetsuit lined inside, obviously, of the board short. It's all fashion on the outside, all function on the inside. Uh, My board short for life, Drifties by Driftline, they're a no-brainer. David, tell the listeners a little bit about... um, Drifties and Driftline and why you're such a big fan? Uh, Compression, comfort. Compression equals comfort for me, personally. Keeps everything snug and secure that I didn't even know I wanted snug and secure. I thought freeballing was the way to go for a long time, but that actually... (laughs) 
turns out to not be the most comfortable. Uh, snug and secure is comfy, and it also reduces chafe. So we were wearing these last week for a week straight, basically, on our trip in North Carolina where the water was mm, 78 in the ocean, 85 in the sound. Um, and they're just perfect. It's the perfect board short. It's a functional board short on the outside, four-way stretch, quick dry, all that kind of stuff that you expect from a technical board short nowadays. But that um, half a millimeter of wetsuit that is sewn on the inside, you can't even see it from the outside, but it provides just a little bit of warmth, a little bit of cushion, a little bit of comp- or a full compression. And uh, it's perfect, perfect board short at driftline.co. As we see some movement at the takeoff zone, it's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry, this thing holding open, it spits. When it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit, spits him out. Comes out after the spit, gets spat out of another good looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got Yeah, guy. Yeah, guy. David, yeah, guy. Hey, you know what? It's a yeah, guy type of morning. Uh, and it is the morning time here in Southern California. Eight o'clock, 8.08 a.m. on Thursday, July 27th. And Scott Bass, David Lee Scales with you here talking all things surf on the Spit Podcast. Good morning, David. Good morning, Scott. Um, I've had a number of listeners email me this week and DM me to show me their recent issue of Westways magazine that showed up in their mailbox. <laughs> There's an article inside called Ocean Oracle, and it talks about somebody who delivers a surf report. I'm just going to read to you a little bit from the article. It says, in fact, his reports, which air on the San Diego NPR station weekdays at 7.22 and 12.22 p.m., 7.22 a.m., 12.22 p.m., are downright poetic. For example, he described waves crumbling, quote, like a fitful toddler fading into a nap, end quote. One day he characterized the ocean surface as having, quote, small dollops of wind, like the top of a lemon meringue pie, end quote. Such vivid bassisms have earned the 58-year-old surfer and longtime Encinitas resident a devoted following among surfers and landlubbers alike. Quote, the richness of his language is almost like poetry, says Encinitas surfer Steve Judd. Rancho Santa Fe resident Sue Dreen, a non-surfer, also tunes in regularly. Quote, I, lo- I look forward to his reports. He's got a sexy baritone voice. Uh, John Decker, the senior director of content development, hired Bass for the gig in 2012. His descriptions of the waves developed over time, he says. Now it's like his calling card. Bass, who supports his family through various surf-centric businesses, including his annual boardroom surfboard show in Del Mar, insists that he doesn't want to push the poetry too far. It's not something you can do every day. I don't want it to be a shtick, says Bass. Yeah, one of my friends, one of my friends emailed me and goes, guess what? If they're doing an article in Westway's magazine on your so-called bassisms, it's a stick. You you officially have a stick. <laughs> you are officially famous, dude. Well, fame's not all it was cracked up to be. I will say this, that uh, this morning there was a light sea breeze coating the ocean like powdered sugar on a donut. <laughs> there it is. There it is. We've been waiting for 10 years for you to bust some out here. And there it is. Yeah, I've actually been working there longer than 2012. I think they hired me in like 2007 or 2005 or some 
but maybe, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but I do remember when it occurred and I was working at Surfer Magazine at the time. So it's got to be around 2005 or seven or something like that. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Hear, Westways Magazine. I want to hear a retraction from Westways next month, correcting the date. No, no, no. <laughs> so, what, so Westways is, for anybody who's not around here, or I guess the US, it's Automobile Association of America, the A, AAA puts out a magazine every, is it every month? Do you know? I do not. Know. I don't know either, but I'm a, I've been a member, even though I'm only 42, 41 years old, I've been a member of AAA for 40 years on my car. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> Since yeah. I was one because I got on my parents' account and they just on my card right when my parents signed up basically. Um, yeah. so I've been a member for 40 years, even though I'm 41 and, uh, I get Westways magazine in the mail as well. So pretty excited. Triple A is awesome, right? Triple A. You can just go to triple A and don't have to go to the DMV. Yeah. I mean, to transfer ownership of cars for every registration, all sorts of stuff. I book rental cars through triple A. They're incredible. I think the fee is like 45, maybe 47 bucks a year for both myself and my wife. And never have to worry about changing a tire, getting your car towed. I've had batteries go dead. They come out, bring me the battery. It's incredible service for the price. Yeah. I'm a big fan of AAA myself. And we too have been members, not quite 40 years, but long time. Now, our, our latest little uh, work trip that we took, you used a different rental car service. Yeah, I did. Um, this sounds like an ad right now, but it's not. Oh, I know, I know, it's not. It's not an ad at all. But uh, <laughs> it could be. It's just advice for living in the modern world, which actually relates to a call that we have later from Ryan in Orlando. But uh, oh. I used Turo for the first time ever, which is kind of like Airbnb for cars, and mm -hmm. had a very positive experience with it. Yeah, and I was talking to my son about Turo. I've used Turo before myself, only one time. The last time I went to Montana, I used it. What a great way to rent a car. It's inexpensive. Um, so that's an option. If you're out there and you're wondering, if you never used Turo, you've got two positive experiences here from David and from myself. And my positive, the I can give you the upsides and the downsides real quick. Um, the upside is you don't have to deal with rental car companies. So you, on the other hand, rented through a rental car company and you had to wait in line for over an hour to get the car after your flight Customer service is notoriously horrendous at a rental car company. You also don't know what vehicle you're going to get. They say, we'll give you a sedan, a midsize sedan like, you know, whatever, a Nissan Sentra, but we're not going to guarantee that it is a Nissan Sentra. And sometimes they end up putting you in a Sequoia. One time I was in Charleston, South Carolina, where the streets are small, and they put me in a Toyota Sequoia, which is this giant vehicle. You know, it's like wouldn't even <laughs> fit in parking structures. Um and the gas is out of control on a car like that, you know? So with Turo, like it operates exactly like the interface is exactly like Airbnb. You see the guy, the owner's name, they have reviews about them as a, you know, dealing with them directly and also about the vehicle itself gives you the mileage of the vehicle, all the vehicles information. Um, and so that I think is a benefit. And then the other benefit was he parked it right outside the terminal and left the key or walked in, met us at baggage claim, handed me the keys. And when we uh, left, we met him in the exact same spot. So we pull up directly to where we're going to exit the, you know, enter the terminal essentially. And it's just easier. It's just easier. all along. No taking yeah. a shuttle back and forth to the car rental agency or anything like that. Yeah. And it's cheaper. Yeah. No. 
I'm a, I was a big fan when I did it. When I used it, it was great. Are you? How are you doing after that trip? Is your body recovered yet? <clears throat> yeah, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm recovered. Um, I've been, you know, doing my workouts and just trying to stay fit and doing all the stuff. And um, I'm, I'm really back in the yoga rooms. I fully re-upped into my yoga thing and doing a little bit of strength training, weights, and of course the Peloton bike. So I'm trying to stay active. It's really has become a part of my life. Like if I don't do it, I feel a little off, you know? Well, somebody, which has been somebody DM'd me or emailed me and said how fit you were looking. Cause one of the photos we posted, you're wearing the gray rash guard and they're like a gray rash mm. guard tells no lies. Like you see <laughs> any, any, um, you know, I don't know. No, no, dude. Look, when somebody takes a picture, I hold it in, dude. I know how to suck <laughs> in the gut. Are you kidding me? I've been doing this a long time. Well, I'm holding it in right now. Well, I, <laughs> I'll tell you what, um, on this trip, I was reminded on it as I get older as well as how, uh, important recovery is. And Joey, who is our guide at, uh, real water sports, teaching us how to foil. He talked about that too on, he's in the ocean. He wants to be in the ocean every single day. And so recovering quickly is key. And I've never really embraced that until I hit my forties. But the reality was we were doing that thing. We were foiling every single day. And I felt like on day two, or maybe it was day three, I just in the morning had not recovered enough from the day before. And so we ended up taking the afternoon off on day three. And that gave me enough time to then feel fresh for the fourth day in the morning. But anything that you can do in terms of yoga or diet and uh, cold plunge or whatever it is to expedite recovery is absolutely key as we've gotten older. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. You know, um, it's a fun journey trying to stay together and, and keep up with the, the 22 year olds out, out in the water. Yeah. Are you, how do you feel now about foiling a week late, a week later? I feel pretty good about it. I actually miss it. I've had um, dreams about it, believe it or not. And um, after this show, I'm going to a friend's house to pick up one of his used foils to kind of use until I get, until I'm convinced that I should buy a new one. Good for you. And uh, yeah. And then later next week, it just so happens a good friend of mine who I've served with for decades I just found out is the Armstrong rep here in Southern California Incredible for Armstrong foil. So I'm meeting with him next week to chat up with him. Cause what a, one of the things I really want is I want some foils, some surf foil companies at the boardroom show. Yep. I want them to be present. I think there's a lot of people, I think it's a growing sport. I know it's a, it's a tough sport to pick up, but I think there's enough really good surfers that want to get away from the crowds and want to, you know, the thing that's so cool about foiling is that you're harnessing the energy underneath the breaking wave. And there's a lot of energy under there, probably more energy. I'm not a physics person, but I bet there's more energy underneath the wave than there is on the breaking surface. And you get to tap into all that speed and energy. And that means you can you can ride what appear to be crappy waves on the surface, but which are really powerful waves on the uh, underneath, just underneath where all the molecules are spinning. So it allows you to surf small days and get away from the crowds and surf spots that you would never normally even consider a good, a good spot. I'm, I'm on board entirely as well. I also feel like having a day or two or now a week away from it 
I feel like I would absolutely uh, do better now with just that little bit of distance from it. You know, when you're under the microscope, you almost get like locked into your bad habits or something. And literally two days after we had finished our lessons, I was like, man, if I paddled that thing out in the ocean right now, I think I'd get my best wave immediately right off the bat. I've, I've, I'm, I've surveyed it now for two days. After the fact, I've watched what other people are doing. And I understand now what they're doing better because of my own experience, but I have distance from my own experience and I think I could apply it now. I think that's great insight. I really do. I think, and I think that applies to a lot of sports. For instance, when I play golf, if I play golf three days in a row, I play horribly. Mm. But if I don't play for a week, my next time out, I generally play pretty good. Interesting. I, I don't know why that is, but uh, you specifically to foiling, you're right. You know, and I've had that same experience. And I've been visualizing myself kind of doing yeah. it properly, you yeah. know, and, and then I've been all over all these foil websites and all this foil Instagram and I'm seeing all these people. And I'm like, There's, if that guy can do it, I know I can do it too. I just got to put in the time. Oh, 100%. I feel that way. Um, the other detail that I like about this is when I was young, I was so focused on, I was myopic on my surf experience. It was like, pointy thrusters shredding as hard as you can and you know make fun of everybody else who does something different essentially and now i understand how stupid that was and i'll think of a conversation i had with dave parmenter seven years ago or something and he was like he was talking about open ocean kind of outrigger canoe paddling and racing and stuff and uh how much data your brain is surveying you're you're looking at lumps that are hundreds of yards out when you're surfing in what he calls the shore break, you know, at our local surf break, um, you're, you're really focusing on what's very close around you. You know, what's within 10 yards, let's say is what you could track down, but out there you're surveying the vast openness of the ocean. And so your brain is processing a million times more data and it's, uh, and then, Travis Tabling in North Carolina, Mike Tabling's son was talking to me about foiling and kind of a, uh, developing the same analogy and he's or the same line of thinking and like you're on a high wire act on that foil. And so your brain is so much more attuned to what's going on because you are on a high wire. There's a lot less room for forgiveness and you're you're surveying things that are farther out and you're trying to get to it and it requires every part of your body. Whereas surfing, you're kind of using your arms for all the paddling and then you get up to your legs and you're up to your feet and you're using your legs for maybe 10 seconds max. But when you're foiling, it's like a full body experience that you're using every single muscle plus all of the brain activity that I was talking about. So all of that intrigues me so much more. It's way more engaging. There's way less downtime than there is in surfing. Yeah. Look, um, we're just at the very beginnings of our foiling, um, you know, experience. So more will will be revealed, but it's certainly just another way to ride waves and uh, all wave, any way you ride a wave is a good way to ride a wave. In my opinion, I've got a retraction of our own to print from last week's show. We were talking about Lakey Peterson and we're like, Oh, it was J Bay her first event. I'm not really sure. You know, I don't know. She's under delivered <laughs> on her potential. Turns out she's won six events. Uh, Margaret River, Surf Ranch, Bali, U.S. Open, J-Bay, Snapper. So huge congrats to Lakey on a recent win, one of many. We uh, totally undervalued her. Absolutely. Totally. Thanks for the retraction. We're big fans, and we mentioned that as much last week, and we want to see her continue. And uh, she certainly has lived up 
to uh, the, her potential, which we sort of um, were suggesting perhaps she hadn't, but uh, it's good to see her uh, on the rise again. I've got one other thing to touch on too. Um, in addition to your Westway's appearance, magazine appearance, <laughs> you were yeah. we, I, two weeks ago, I was telling you about the Mickey Dora podcast, Lost Hills. Yeah. You binged it the next day. And then I get a phone call from you and you're like, dude, I'm in episode number seven. <laughs> You're in the podcast and you didn't even know it until you listened. No, I had no idea. I, and then, so I, I'm like, I want to interview Dana, the the person that produced and hosts the show. She's great, right? Mm-hmm. I think her name's Dana. Dana Goodyear. And uh, yeah, so I, I reached out to Jim Kempton. And I'm like, how do I get a hold of her? And he's like, oh, I can't tell you. I was told not to tell you. He's like, but here's her, here's her production person or whatever, right? which I found kind of, I know, like really, but. Anyway, I reached out to whoever runs her production and I never heard back, but I feel like I got some leverage. They, I think she time, do a they used your audio clip without asking you, without compensating you, and then big timed you when you asked for an interview? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but Dana. I know. I was, blown, I was so blown away when I heard myself. I'm like, wait a minute. That sounds like me. It is me. What's going on here? But that's cool. I'm, I'm you know, honored to be in such a great podcast. I'm a big fan of what she's done. And um I learned a lot more about Mickey Dora. You know, I thought I kind of knew the story. And of course, uh, you know, we do. But um, I've left the Lost Hills podcast um, even even thinking Dora's more of a dick than I realized. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. We know the story, but when you get into all the nitty gritty details and hear from the people directly affected by his bad behavior... Yeah, there's no uh, overlooking it. It's funny. There's a lot of narcissism. There's a, I think, you know, there's some truism about if you're upset by something, it's because you recognize it within yourself. And I think that might be the case with Dora. There's a lot of stuff. I was brought up in sort of, you know, like the late 70s, early 80s here in Southern California. And, and there was a lot of sort of, cultural Dora trappings that, that landed on me as a, as a kid, as a guy who sucked up surf culture. And, um, you know, I, I was one of these punky kids that thought it was cool to, to, you know, be like a local guy or to, um, to have tribalism, to, to overtly project tribalism on others. And it's just really immature and, um, and it's sad, you know, it's, but luckily I'm recognized, I've recognized it and we're trying to, we're trying to spread aloha the way that, um, Kathy Corner, uh, Gidget would suggest we do. So it was kind of neat that whole episode. It, it had me thinking about myself and my own behavior and how much power Dora and the Dora Mystique has over us. You know, there, I found it interesting. There's people that still sort of defend him on some level and I'm not certainly out to prosecute him in any way, but um, I'm not sure that, you know, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to, to be okay with him and his behavior um, only because it doesn't seem like there was any, ever any self for us, uh, like introspection on his part that, that he never was able to kind of go, okay, maybe I was a little bit wrong here. You know, it's almost like he doubled down on everything. You know what I, when we, when there was that Andy Lyons incident at Malibu. Yeah. 
And it, we really unpacked that and we're like, you know, does localism serve a purpose? And I think one thing that I landed on was it has traditionally, but the problem becomes when it's the wrong person who's kind of doling out the uh, authority, right? And I feel like that's kind of the way with Dora is societally, there was a time where it was kind of important to have a hierarchy and rites of passage and protect a resource. And we've gone through a transition where it's just too crowded to really effectively do that. But there's somebody at the top of the pecking order who takes it upon themselves to kind of dole out the way of the past. And Dora was doing it under the guise of, I'm protecting Malibu and what is sacred. However, that was a lie. He was doing it strictly for his own gain. You know what I mean? And so putting it under that, I don't know, fake pretense of it's for the the greater good or the way of the past or something like that did dupe a handful of people because people are, or more than a handful of people, people did want to protect the traditional style of surf culture. But the reality is he was never doing it for an altruistic benefit. It was only strictly for his own personal gain. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of the takeaway is that there's just so much selfishness, you know, like he embodies just a real, you know, I'm doing it my way and I'm going to do it my way, even if it means everybody else is going to be stepped upon. And um, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's a pretty unhealthy thing. Well. I remember Mickey Mickey Munoz told me this story directly, and I don't know if it was on air or not, and I don't know if I've shared it here or not, uh, but he basically said that he was with Dora and a couple other guys, and they stopped in, it might have been at Malibu, uh, they stopped in to have lunch after a surf, and it was this cafe run by a husband and wife, super sweet woman um, running the front of the house, the wife, and they had enough money to pay for the meal, but Dora told Mickey Munoz and everybody else, hey, I'm going to cover the check. Go ahead and go out in the car. And then they all go wait in the car. And then Dora comes running out. And he's like, all right, let's get out of here. He had skipped out on the bill. Even though they had enough money to pay for the meal, he skipped out on the bill. And the woman ran after them. And Mickey Munoz was nervous because he thought like, oh no, she's catching us and she's going to call the police or whatever. She came out knowing that they had skipped out on the bill but with a smile on her face. And she said, hey, gentlemen, you forgot to pay the bill, but don't worry about it. This one's on me. More than happy to take care of you guys. Have a great day. Hopefully you'll come back and dine here again. And Mickey Munoz was like, wow, Dora took advantage of the sweetest woman in the world. And she knew that he was, and she still was willing to turn you know, the other cheek and allow us some grace in this moment. And that's when Mickey Munoz really had a change of heart about his friend, Mickey Dora, and realized I want to associate with the people like that woman, essentially, and not with these guys. Oh, that's a great anecdote. That's a great story. And Mickey, of course, filled with good stories like that. That's cool. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. But I mean, it's unfortunate about what Mickey was doing. But Yeah. Well, what uh, clip did she use of yours that was related to the podcast. Oh, she was speaking about the value of the Mickey Dora Decat surfboards, the Greg Knoll Decat 
collaboration. And um, she used clips that I put together of me sort of marketing some of the decat models that we've sold at the California Gold Vintage Surf Auction. And um, she was just kind of using my stuff to, to one, express how much we lift this guy up based on the value of his the boards, uh, you know, us within the surf culture. And two, um, you know, that Mickey was the name Mickey Dora sells, you know, and it sells because of this mystique, which I think, I mean, I, you know, Daniel Dwayne said it best in the piece. He's basically like at the end, the very last episode, he says, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but he more or less says, why do we look up to this guy? I mean, what, how much more evidence do we need to see? This guy's a complete jerk, you know, like Nazism, fascism, anti-Semitism, uh, thievery uh, you know selfishness narcissism like where's the redeeming quality you know yeah, we don't look up to him i think officially at this point but his stories are you know make for really compelling listening and discussion yeah well yeah, cool interesting. well congratulations on that and inclusion um i guess <laughs> Uh, your, your legacy in surfing is cemented beyond just your poetic surf reports. I don't, I'm not looking for any cement. Um, well (laughs) we have, uh, how surfers get paid season two, episode one aired this last week. Oh my. We've got the Chopu event coming up. I've got a listener email from Ryan in Orlando. Where should we begin? Uh, let's hear the listener email from Ryan in Orlando. Get ready. I'm ready. This message is for Spit. This is Ryan from Orlando. Wanted to talk to Scott and David about must-see moments that haven't occurred yet. We all are kind of in this little weird phase with the WSL and what it's doing or not doing, but just wanted a reminder that we grew up on surf films. We didn't get to watch competitions. I believe I'm right in the middle of ages between Scott and you, Dave. Um, Two things that I wanted to bring up. We don't have any of our heroes older than us anymore, and I think that is a lot of money being left on the table as far as the surf industry. Um, I'm talking a show with, like, Michael Ho, Barton Lynch, Tom Carroll, um, I want to see those guys out surfing. I want to hear what they're up to, what they're thinking, how their diets have changed as, as things have gone on. Um, you can even have Tom, little spirituality. Let's, let's get into it. Let's see what this next chapter is that we're all heading toward. Um, I think that would be a, a great show for something like Stab. And my other Stab show would probably be something like uh, How Surfers Travel. That still hasn't really been done. There's uh, a lot to know about airfares and credit cards and how they're packing their boards and this and that. All of us are taking these little trips and we're just kind of figuring it out as we go along, but it would be nice to get some of the uh, travel hacks. Anyway, uh hope you guys are doing great and uh, just a couple of things that I've been thinking about that I would love to see besides the WSL, and I think they're uh, completely doable on STAB, and this is free of charge, so anybody at STAB that hears this, go ahead, make these shows. Let's do it. Thanks. 
Bye. I think when he says we don't have any heroes that are older than us anymore, I think what he meant to say is content from those people who we have generally looked up to, like you said, Michael Ho and Barton Lynch and stuff like that. Like we need content from those guys. That's what we relate to. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, um, you know, email or a voicemail because it does speak to one is the demographic aging so rapidly that that there's a bunch of us that are still thirsty for that insight from those those hero guys, you know, the Barton Lynches of the world um, that we all grew up with as our as our heroes. And I think that there there is, I'm sure that the guys at Stab are like, oh no, we don't want to go anything older than thirty, right, you know. Right. It's an <laughs> it's an oversight. But but to their defense, I mean, these house surfers get paid or all look back to 15, 20 years ago in some True. instances. So, well, and all the guys that are great are guys our age. Like the guys that we see talking are all guys that are like, you know, no BS guys that don't have anything to sort of protect. And so they're, they're saying all the right things are being, you know, forthright and uh, honest. And so it's kind of cool. Well, I agree with kind of part of what Ryan was saying was it's almost like we've gotten too reliant in the last years on the WSL. It's like we all hate watch it and then complain about what they're not doing. And that becomes the main topic of conversation. But the, yeah. but like he was saying, up until a certain point, we didn't even have access to watch those contests in real time. We had to wait for the magazine yeah. to report on them. And even then it was just a small portion of the magazine, you know? So, I love his idea that there are much broader concepts to consider and to acknowledge and to explore for the, especially considering that article that was written recently, that the average age of a surfer now is 45 years old. And so Ryan's tapping into exactly it. Competitive surfing is tiny. We're, fo we're focusing 80% of our energy on looking at it and discussing it. It should be focused, 5% of our energy should be focused on it. But he says there's not content from those people that we used to glorify. And I think there actually is. Barton Lynch has a podcast called The Stoked Bloke, and it's excellent. Yeah. I think yeah. Brad Gerlach's stuff is killer, super insightful, and applicable for us. Um, yeah. Laird Hamilton, even, to be perfectly honest, he's not like... I don't know, showcasing his surfing, but he is showcasing his workout routines and all that kind of stuff behind the scenes. It's a glimpse essentially behind the scenes into his world, which I think is great. Yeah. Tom Carroll's daily meditations that he does on Instagram that he hosts is incredible. Yeah. If you're into that, um, yeah. Shane Haran is just an entertaining account. If you want to follow that, it's not necessarily tips and insights, but it's just very entertaining. Have you reached out to him? Because I'm trying to get a hold of him. He he texted me this morning. He's like, I need your phone number because I've been trying to hunt him down for a podcast. Yeah, I, I DM'd him. I got his phone number if if you don't have it. Yeah, he's got mine. I'm, I'll send you so his phone We'll number. see what happens. Yeah, I've got his Yeah, phone that'd number. be good. Anyway, along those lines, David, um, you know, this kind of is a segue into the stab, how surfers get paid. Because when you read, when you when you go to stab and you watch that, um, Sam breaks down um, kind of what their plans are for the future, that they want to do a more deep dive, long format, more time for these stories to spread out um, because they just felt like, wow, we're on gold here and we're not giving it enough time. And so I have a list of, you know, three or four or five 
long format deep dives that they could do at Stab or somebody could do on a podcast the way Dana did. Um, and so let's get to that once we get through uh, season, uh, season two, episode one of How Surfers Get Paid, because I do have a little list of stuff that I think would be great. Okay. I like it. Um, I will say, as it relates to Ryan's call and this, this kind of post-ELO WSL, maybe even post-WSL era, to be perfectly honest, I think is more interesting. It's a more interesting era in surfing because it's going back to venerating the elders, you know, which are like the ones who have all of this information and insight and know-how and the way that surfing began, you know, was venerating the elders. And so I think this is infinitely more interesting. I might be saying this because I'm becoming an elder, but it's infinitely, (laughs) (laughs) it's infinitely more interesting than focusing all of the energy on 13 year olds and what they want and what, you know, branding things for them, creating content for them. That was a race to the bottom. That was a race to the lowest common denominator. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm into this post ELO post WSL era. Well, how surfers get paid season two. Um, it, it's fat. First of all, it's great as, as, uh, most people have noticed. I'm sure most people have watched it. It focuses on Grant Twiggy Baker. And again, here's a guy who I thought I knew a lot about. And I'm sure you thought you knew a lot about. I'm sure that the listeners thought they knew a lot about. And I learned a lot about him. I had no idea that he was sort of this hustler. They they sort of, they put him at at the beginning. They say he's a hustler. He's a pirate. Somebody even goes so far as to say he's untrustworthy, which I thought was kind of gnarly. And then they go on to talk about the greatest story never sold, this this Mick Fanning wave that um, Twiggy knew about, that Greg Long knew about, a wave that they've been surfing for a long time. And and at some point, Twiggy's just like, hey, you know what? I'm going to sell my information to the highest bidder uh, in the surf industry. And it's just a great, a great deep dive into, into who Grant Twiggy Baker is and what a fascinating character he is. Even, even though we knew he was fascinating, I find him more fascinating now. Well, I'm going to, um, I don't know, take the opposite stance a little bit in that I did not think that this episode to kick off season two was as compelling as any of the episodes in season one, or, or I thought that the story itself was, but Mm -hmm. it was one story. All of season one of how surfers get paid was centered around a theme or a concept. And then there was a bunch of stories within that theme and concept per episode. Right. And this was just one person and this one story of him selling this surf spot to the highest bidder, which I think is an interesting story. It's just not what I expected from how surfers get paid. And I understand Grant Twiggy Baker got paid for this, but I, you know, I, it just wasn't, I, I don't think it was as kind of robust as the other episodes. It wasn't as insightful as the other I episodes. almost, I almost think that it's, that this project is mistitled. You know, I don't feel like it's how surfers get paid anymore. Well, like, that, I feel right. like this, this one was episode a, isn't. Yeah, yeah, this is more of a deep dive into a, a Twiggy anecdote exactly. that's legendary. Exactly. And and so I, because uh, I agree with you, I watched it and was like, oh, this is. Am I really watching how surfers get paid here? You know, and and I guess on some level, yeah, I am. But really, this was a this was a who this was a you know a biography exactly. on Grant Twiggy. This Bay. is a documentary about an incident that happened one 
in time. But yeah, I, yeah. every, you know. And they use that to excavate Twiggy. Totally. At the five minute mark, I was waiting for them to shift stories into something else of somebody else selling a different surf spot and how they got paid. Yeah. And that, and yeah. it never shifted. It was 40 minutes on the same exact story. But I'm just nitpicking uh, because the concept or the story itself was excellent and it was well told. And I, in fact, did not know it at all prior. We all remember the wave that was called the snake and it was kind of uh, shrouded in secrecy. It was a Mick Fanning going to surf this wave that had, quote, you know, was undiscovered. And Rip Curl used it as a campaign uh, for, you know, a bunch of whatever they were doing at the time. So I remember that happening. And then there was all this hullabaloo, people trying to figure out on Google Earth or Google Maps where um, that spot was and looking for clues on the foreground and the background and all that sort of stuff. I, f- I found it, by the way. Did you? I, I found it. <laughs> I sent it to you. Did you see that text I sent Oh, you? that's what that text was right now. Well, yeah, you found it since then. You, Google Earth. you didn't find it back in the day. No, no, no. I just was like instantly. I've, I had a feeling ever since they that it came out. I mean, not just me, the entire surf world had a pretty good idea of where it was. And Greg Long explains as much in this piece, but I always knew that there's right-hand sand points in the Western Sahara. Ever since my first trips to Morocco, all the Moroccan guys were like, oh yeah, you go right down here and there's a ton of waves down here. And the barrier of entry is all of the travel and, you know, um, figuring out the exact conditions that it will be firing within or under and putting yeah. in your time to understand all that information. You know, it's not like there are Airbnbs that you can just go camp out in with Wi-Fi and air conditioning and wait until you find the right conditions. It requires a lot of real hardcore travel to figure out those details. And so Grant Twiggy Baker, along with Greg Long, did the work figured it out and they were able to do strike missions down to that spot for years and just surf flawless right hand sand point by themselves uh for a long time and grant you know what's interesting kind of about this story is that's a traditional way to do surf exploration find something keep it a secret and surf it by yourself but to be perfectly honest in the last two decades people exploit things and there's so much money involved in surfing that exploitation has become the no, the norm. And so yeah. Grant had been operating under uh, a different way of thinking, a traditional way of thinking and not exploiting something until he did. The more that he kept it a secret, the more value it gained. And him being the hustler that you described at the beginning of the episode decided I'm ready to share this, but not with the world. I'm going to share it with the highest bidder, and I'm going to do it with non-disclosures to ensure that it remains a secret. I'm Whoever I'm going to sell this to is going to buy it with the understanding that we're not going to share this information at all. And so he presented the idea to Kelly Slater. And he's like, Kelly, here's one image of it. Do you want to come surf the best right sandpoint in the world on the best day of the year, you know, whatever. And Kelly's like, yeah, I'm down to do that, but I'm not going to pay you what you're asking me to pay you for that privileged information. And so he then took it to Rip or to Mick Fanning, who then took it to Neil Ridgeway at Rip Curl and Rip Curl paid the sum. And so this piece never lands on the number that was paid for this information from Grant, 
but they dance all the way around it to, I think, kind of give you an indicator of a ballpark of what that number was. What did yeah. what did you determine that number to be? I think it's a hundred thousand. I, so I think too. he sold it for a hundred thousand. I think that's the right amount. And there's some hints there because I think Jordy says it was worth ten x, which tells me, you know, okay, they think it's worth a million. They only got a hundred thousand. And then I think Grant Twiggy Baker kind of, you know, and they toy between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand. And I'm just going to suggest to you that it. I think it's a hundred thousand dollars. I based on everything that everybody said, I landed on a hundred thousand as well. And they said, like you said, uh, Jordy said it was worth 10 X. Then they cut to grant saying, you know, I should have gotten a million out of it. That was a million dollars. Or somebody says that was a million dollar yeah. campaign. And rip curl was thrilled with their return on that investment because that was the most successful campaign that they've ever ran. And, you know, it would have been worth it for them to pay a million dollars. But, yeah. but yeah, it did seem like a hundred K and I think Grant, it was worth a hundred K to him. Like, I mean, I think he felt like that was a great deal at the time Only in hindsight, of course, everything looks different, but he got what he, you know, was a great deal for him for the information that he had. And rib curl got a great deal on that spend based on how they rolled out that marketing. So win, win, but what are your thoughts? The other question that they asked kind of throughout all their interviews is, uh, what are your thoughts on exploiting a surf spot for money like that? Well, that's a great question. That's sort of the overarching uh, moral dilemma here within this piece. You know, could this happen again? Are there people that are now searching Google Earth like I did this morning thinking, hey, man, there's gold in them, their coastlines, you know, um, if I can tap into a spot, find it, do my due diligence and then sell it to somebody? I don't know. Um, will there be a gold rush, so to speak, on Google Earth? Um, I'm not sure. Is it is it okay? I mean, it's it, it's kind of like well, it is. It, it's surf capitalism, right? But it's in some ways, it's almost like imperialism. I was trying to figure out exactly what it is that he's done here. Um, you know, what is he selling? Like, is and, and part? Of, and I even wrote a list. I'm like, I was like, I'm going to ask David, what is the bad that comes from this? Like, what is the bad? Is there any bad that occurs from this? And I, and I kind of struggled with coming up with something that's bad about it. Um, you know, one of them is like surf hegemony, you know, where we show up at a spot and we invade our, and we imprint our culture upon a culture that already exists and sort of stamp out their culture and make our culture the dominant Western culture. You know, that's basically hegemony when we, when, when we just take over. And I don't think that happens here. And I don't think surfers do that anymore. I think surfers are generally pretty sensitive to all that. And in fact, there's been a movement to celebrate local and indigenous cultures when you go there instead of you know, there's like the famous thing where in the NEOS in the 90s, people showed up with porn magazines and were taking bong hits and getting drunk and just like not respecting the culture and especially the, the religious um, sort of ideals that are set up within those cultures. And I don't think we do that anymore. So I can't say that, that that's a, something that's occurring here. Like I don't and I don't think that's the case. Um, so is there cultural imperialism? I don't think so. What's the bad here? This guy took information that he, you know, garnered, researched, and sold it. And I think people sell information all day long. Right now, they're selling our information, yours and mine, and all the listeners 
all our data is being sold. That's why I'm getting, as we speak, I'm getting these junk phone calls from people, you know? So this is just selling of information. I'm not. As long as the information doesn't lead to something negative on the other end, I think this fishing village is probably stoked that there are visitors. I think that it's probably good for tourism, you know, if in fact that's what the local, I guess you got to ask the locals what they want, you know, are they okay with this? And is it, you know, good for the region? I totally agree. I have no qualms about this, about Twiggy selling this. If you try to draw analogies to like, um, communities that didn't understand or didn't know that they were sitting on a valuable resource, maybe it is a mineral or diamonds, let's say, and then corporate developed world shows up and pilfers their resource and then enslaves the people to pilfer the resource or underpays the people, let's say, to pilfer well, the let, resource. Let me just interrupt real quick because just what you're, you're getting you're at where really. I'm going. You're going to where I'm going. Okay. But, is, well, let me just say this. When a diamond mine gets discovered and corporate Western interests show up, they generally pay off one of the major people within that community. And that guy screws over sure. his low, his local. Okay. And well, what I was going to say is though that those diamonds are also a finite resource in that community that that community would have been entitled to, let's say, because they are the owners of that land or the stewards of that land or whatever. This isn't that this is transient waves. Yes. It's a finite resource, but they come back with the next swell, you know? So those waves were dissipating unmolested for, eons. And so surfers showing up, it's a, it's a light footprint. They are not actually pilfering a a finite resource from that community that that community could otherwise use. And there will be, of course, tourist concerns and or benefits for that community to consider. And so that's something for, and I think that uh, Twiggy and Grant or Greg even said you know, we've used some of the proceeds of those profits to invest in the local communities, schooling or water or something like that. So they they did consider that to lessen the footprint of what would come in the future. So I have no qualms. I don't think that there's another analogy of, you know, these corporate or whatever the things that you were talking about. Those aren't even apt analogies because this is surfers who are just coming to ride waves that would have gone unridden otherwise. So really the question is, Grant selling it to Rip Curl, like is Rip Curl the one or whoever is the buyer, are they going to feel slighted by this exchange? And the answer is no, they are a capitalist company who is existing solely in the pursuit of profit and they made an investment and it turns out they saw a return on this particular investment. So I think everybody comes away clean in this. Yeah, I do too, mostly because it's so hard to get to the spot that it's you know, for the for foreseeable future, it's not going to get out of hand. And because this conversation, as you were speaking, I started thinking, oh, Rip Curl, oh, the search. Wasn't there a really good wave down in mainland Mexico that was basically kind of no one really knew about it? Um, I mean, a lot of Californians maybe, but it wasn't on the world map. And then Rip Curl came in with Surfline and kind of blew it up for the search. And now it could be argued that for the guys that had known about the spot for decades, it kind of got ruined. Now I'm not going to argue either side. I'm just saying that situation's a little bit different, right? Like it feels like if you're one of the guys that put in the time and the effort to 
to surf down in that region of mainland Mexico. And then all of a sudden, a big corporate entity comes in and blows it up to the surf world. You're kind of a little bit butthurt, probably, you know, but, well, rip, you know, rip curl. It probably was going to happen, especially in Mexico. Well, to, to Rip Curl's credit in this telling of, or this version, this story, and to yeah. Twiggy's credit, they went- More to Twiggy, maybe, right? Because they kind of- Yeah. They, they like controlled, they controlled the, the camera, the film, they controlled everything. They, you know- They digitally removed background, indi- background- uh, indicators or information what what are you saying or did they they said they did but part of me is like oh they're already throwing smoke screens they're saying they cgi'd stuff out where you'll be able to that would determine the wave but i'm thinking they probably didn't they're probably nothing that determines the wave what you see is what you get and they're just saying they cgi'd stuff out to throw us off the yeah the scent that's very good they very well could have done that too but they certainly took extreme efforts to conceal the information from being shared publicly, which in the rib curl search event that you were talking about, I don't feel that was more of an open secret, you know? Yeah, totally, totally agree. And there was also, you know, a lot of talk about giving back to that local community in Mexico. And, um, and uh, I don't know how that went down. I'm sure they did. I, from my understanding, even within that little community, there was a splintering of the politics within that community that not all of those funds got dispersed to the places they were told they were going to go to. But that's just with, that's like a microcosm of, of the world, yeah, you know, happens. like that just happens everywhere. Well, I think that this is a story that could only really happen once to be perfectly honest. I think yeah. um, if you were just some nerd sitting in your in your office looking at Google earth, trying to find surf spots and then selling them to the highest bidder. You want to be able to do it and you want to get the money. You want to get that amount of money. It re- what was valuable here was the fact that it was grant Twiggy Baker. He has unbelievable pedigree and track record for knowing what is actually the best right hand sand point in the world because he's surfed them, you know, and, and yeah. won events and all this kind of stuff. So the fact that it was grant and then the fact that, those surfers know that Grant was notorious for scouring that coastline. He is the expert in all ways. And so that's what made this so valuable. And I don't think that even Grant could necessarily do this again. This was one, this was at the right time, the right spot, the right, all, you know, the brands were flush with cash, all that sort of stuff. Well, when I think about locations that are potential for this type of exploitation, and then I think about who's the Grant Twiggy Baker in that region. You know, like I think of like Peter DeVries in Canada, or there's probably some places like up in Norway or even up, uh, up into past um, Nova Scotia. Like there's islands up there that are super fickle, but when there's hurricanes this time of year, you know, September or whatever, they get plenty of swell up there and there's probably killer nooks and crannies and there's probably locals that are like oh you know what now that i've seen this piece maybe the little super killer spot that i know about that i've been surfing for 20 years i could perhaps call whoever you know yeah i don't think it would be patagonia but it could be somebody even even still i think the reason kelly turned down the offer from twiggy is kelly can go tomorrow and go get barreled on empty waves virtually any time of year. You know, Kelly yeah. Kelly has enough information 
to go do that on his own without paying somebody a hundred thousand dollars for the access. This was yeah. really the shroud of secrecy was part of the marketing campaign for Rip Curl. So yeah. Rip Curl was not only buying access to the spot, they were buying the concept of the search back from Twitch. Well, they, they weren't even buying it, but it just married perfectly. Yeah. You know, it just married perfectly with a marketing campaign that already exists. Exactly. This was part of that entire brand's ethos. So I don't think that Patagonia or Hurley at the time or any of the other brands would have necessarily even seen the value of the concept. It was really yeah. tailored specifically for Rip Curl's ethos. Yeah. For sure. Well, there's some other stuff in this piece that's interesting because as we mentioned, they also, it sort of highlights who Grant Twiggy Baker is. And they went into um, sort of a sidebar, if you will, about some of the most momentous big waves ever ridden. And of course, um, they focus heavily on Grant Twiggy Baker's ride at Jaws, which was just this incredible double up late drop pull into the tube. Crazy. Just, just crazy. Just a crazy wave that everybody that was interviewed said none of them would have gone, but there's, there's Grant Twiggy Baker with his head down paddling like a madman into this great wave. And in the process of talking about that, they brought up some mom other waves that were momentous. They brought up Nathan Fletcher's crazy towing wave at Chopu. Uh, they brought up Sion Miloski had a wave at Himalayas. They brought up Cole Christensen's wave that, that, incredible day at cloud break, uh, thundercloud, you know, um, whatever year that was, was that 2012 or something? Like Who that? knows? It's all anyway, blur. Aaron gold. At, yeah, it is Aaron gold at jaws. They brought up Jay Moriarty's famous wave that was on the cover of surfing magazine. And they, and it got me thinking, what are some of the big waves that they didn't bring up? Like there's so many iconic big waves that they didn't sort of highlight as being, just below what Grant Twiggy Baker caught, you know, and the obvious one to me was Peter Mel's wave at Mavericks. There was no mention of that. I found that pretty surprising because you and I have talked about that might be one of the greatest, that is the greatest wave ever ridden at Mavericks. Oh, yeah. And how could you not put that in there? And was that, why was there a, was that just, look, we got enough examples of great big wave rides. We don't need to add one more. It seemed like that was a miss. They were they were specifically talking. talking about the greatest rides that were barely not completed. Oh. Because Aaron Gold gets mowed over by the whitewash at the bottom of that wave. Nathan Fletcher gets blown out off his board at the end of that barrel. And so yeah. the, the conversation was this is the greatest wave that was almost the almost the greatest wave that ever has been, you know? Right. 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 I missed that part. I mean, I don't know. Okay. Well, yeah. cool. Um, but it, I mean that wave, what? I forgot about that wave to be honest about Twiggy. I remember seeing it after they showed it. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember, but it, it had escaped my memory up until then. And his free fall drop is insane. The fact that he night, that he lands on the rail and like pulls up under the hood into the barrel in that really like, I mean, the most critical of moments, you know, yeah. the way that he does that is unbelievable. And the fact that he rides the barrel as long as he does is insane. Every one of those three elements was the most remarkable version of that thing that I had ever seen done. And, uh, it, it gets blown out with so much spit. He just gets blown off his board essentially. It's like, there's no way you'd have to be super glued to your board to not get blown off at that point. But it really was 
the greatest ride never completed, you know, as they land. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you this thing that stabs doing these long form episodes that they're doing remind me of what our caller earlier in the show was talking about that. There are surf films that we grew up on that are long form. There are surf contests that in some regards are long form in that there's a two week waiting period and we're kind of engaged in it. There's the magazines, which were long form for us. I mean, magazines last forever. Like you could just pick up one from 72 right now and just be flipping through it. And in this day and age of digital uh, content, we miss the long form. And these types of things in 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to be talking about the stab thing that they did on Grant Twiggy Baker as the long form thing that we're, that we remember. Cause like you said, like we kind of forget all this little instant digital stuff that comes at us and um, to excavate, it helps to keep it cemented into the history and the legacy and the culture of, of surfing. Yeah. I think they did a phenomenal job with this piece. I, I didn't mean to speak poorly of it at the very beginning of this segment it just it was wrongly branded, I think, as a house surfers get paid piece. But I agree, yeah. it's a great piece on Twiggy and a great piece on him, a story on him selling that wave, the access to that wave. What I loved about it is I actually didn't know hardly anything about Twiggy. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I've seen his surfing, I've seen you know the big wave exploits and stuff like that, but I really didn't know anything about that whole hustler mentality. I didn't know how devoted he was to surfing by himself on empty, perfect waves around the world rather than servicing his sponsor's needs essentially. Um, and so I, I was endeared to him. I like him a lot more coming out of this. Piece. And wh- why do you think that is? Why do you think that you didn't know a whole lot? And I didn't know a whole lot about Grant Twiggy Baker. Well, uh, I think it's related to his personality type of wanting to go surf flawless yeah. waves by himself. I don't think so. Okay. I think it's completely related to his age. There's no way the surf industry wants to market a 30 something year old surfer and it's to their detriment and to their um, nearsightedness, you know, because they're like, okay, who's on the billabong team? Well, let's market one of the, you know, Tory Baron or let, you know, whoever's 20 years old is getting our attention because that's, what's going to sell our board charts, you know, or, you know, and they they just didn't see the, they just, they, they missed the boat with, you know, and I think that's what we, we talked about earlier. Like, look, these guys that are 45, 50 years old are the most interesting guys because they have stories to tell. It's a hundred percent accurate. They are way more interesting. It just takes more time to tell their stories and you have to work harder to excavate it. I think this piece should, and I hope they rebrand it to the best stories never told, yeah. which is something that they meant. They use that phrase and then they change it to the best stories never sold. Which it turns out to be the best story ever sold, not never sold because he did sell it. Right. And they're selling it now. We just we just re-upped on our Stab Premium subscription, which by the way is worth every penny. Uh, so when we think about the concept of the best stories never told, and you and I have talked about this, we've made lists about this before. And so I'm going to re-engage here. I've got a few of them. One of them, I think, is the Tavarua Island discovery story. Mm. There, I know for a fact that there are some deep, dark secrets about how Tavarua Island really came into existence, how the rights became cemented, the politics of the Fijian government, 
look, let's be honest. There was Australians there that were claiming it before there was Americans there. And so there's a great Australian American sort of struggle and dynamic and, um, and fight here. And, um, I think that's one of them that's like almost can't talk about that. might not get invited to Tavarua. Who knows? You know what I mean? Like there's so many of these stories where we're still, even though there's, everyone says, Oh, it's all over the magazine or the, the, you know, the corporate structure's gone. So we can tell all of these stories, but in fact, I don't think we can tell all of these stories. And, um, I think that's one of them. I think that would be a great one to, uh, to see uncovered by the guys at STAB. The other one I think is the Sonny Garcia story. It's still unfolding. Yeah. We don't know what's going on there. There's been a full shroud put over that. Um, yeah. um, the other one, do you want me to keep yeah, going or yeah, do you go, want to chime in? The other one I think that's fascinating is the Andy Irons uh, Surfer Magazine, Brad Malekian story. Um, how the politics of the magazine got, how, you know, believe me, we were getting phone calls from the head guys at Billabong going, who's this Brad Malekian guy and why is he writing this stuff? And, you know, we're going to pull all our advertising, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. I think that's, that's interesting. You're saying the story Um, there is uh, the people who are protecting Andy's legacy did not want the story to be told about his drug use, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then I think there might be something semi-interesting, I don't know, um, to the Volcom-Bruce Irons breakup. You know, I think that's one that I don't know much about. I've heard you and I've heard stuff, you know, and, and maybe there isn't a story there. I don't know. I'm just I'm just kind of riffing with you. And of course, the other one, the big one now that that's playing out in front of us or not playing out is Eric Logan in the WSL. Great. Yeah, I would love for them to spend some time excavating that. I mean, I, I heard some stuff the other day, which is just sort of backing up what you and I said, that there there's some human resource issues um, with Eric and maybe him, um, you know, going off the reservation a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Chaz, believe it or not, did a pretty journalistic, decent journalistic job unpacking it on Beach Grit, which he normally doesn't do. Uh, did you read that article by any chance? I did. I did scan over it actually. And it was right after I was in a golf tournament uh, Monday with a bunch of surf industry people. And, and I got to spend some time with some people that were asking me about what you and I thought about it on, on our podcast and stuff. And I said, you know, basically what everyone else is saying that the quiet speaks volumes that there's, they put such a, the kibosh on this thing that legally there must be something. And, and my, my people that I talked to said, look, they think the settlements already happened that this thing's um, done and dusted. Like we're not going to hear anything about it, that the part of the settlement is everyone keeps quiet and we move on. Interesting. So who got paid? Um, Probably some female pro surfers. Yep. There you go. You know, and you probably know who, like you and I are afraid to even say who we think. Well, so I'll say what Chaz's article said. You know, uh, so Chaz basically alludes to the fact throughout the article that Eric Logan had made unwanted advances towards uh, female professional surfers and females within the organization. That was kind of his M.O. It was kind of an open secret that everybody just had been around and experienced enough of that from him that everybody kept their distance and had learned to not be caught alone, essentially, with him. And yeah. that it was worse with his drinking 
And so that it seemed to be that although it was making people uncomfortable and although it was an open secret, he had not done anything that was certainly did not do anything that was illegal, but then also did not do anything that violated the WSL's policies for, you know, a couple of years. And then the rumor was, or the suspicion was that something during the down days in Brazil had happened that then became a violation of WSL policy and that WSL, you know, that was a liability for them and especially a bad look for them considering how they, uh, the things that they brought, the things that they uh, purport to value, let's say, as an organization. To have their kind of head CEO, the face of their business, operating in a way that was, uh, you know, distasteful and now a violation of their policies was And it's almost as if what you're mentioning is that the WSL had all the cards in their hand. They were ready to pull the plug. They just needed one more episode and one more episode occurred. And that's why it just happened. So boom, quickly, like they were waiting to kind of well, snap the trap, so to speak. I, and I'm, I, I'm curious if that is true because that shows a level of cl- complicity on their behalf. Like if they knew that this was a pattern of behavior that had walked right up to the line and they did not do anything to quell it. I think that's a problem uh, for the organization, yeah. but the other well, I don't know that to be true. I'm just assuming yeah, that. Yeah, I don't either. But the other problem that I have here is, um, or the other the other detail here is that the surfers rumor again were ready. They did not like Eric. They did not like Eric's decision making and direction of the tour. So the surfers were really looking for an opportunity to uh, catch him in a misstep and then report it over his head to kind of get this guy out of here. So whatever allegedly happened or didn't happen, um, it could just be, it could also be that the surfers were really looking for him to trip up so that they could make this, you know, make him go away essentially. So my question, when I asked you who got paid in this settlement is if he did violate something, a policy, it would make sense yeah. that yes, the surfer or whoever was the aggrieved party was the one who would get paid out in this scenario. But the secondary scenario is if there is no evidence that Eric did whatever this was, then he actually has a case of wrongful termination. If the WSL just took the rumor and fired him for a rumor, but there was no evidence, then he could lawyer up and be like, hey, I understand you guys yeah. need to protect yourselves, but none of that is true. And so you need to make a decision either fire me yeah. and pay me out or keep me on because I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And, and it could be also the case that they said, look, Eric fly home. We need to talk. This is important. This is gnarly. This is what's happening. He flew home and they said, look, here's what's on the table. We're going to give you a severance. We're gonna, you got to get out of here. We're going to pay you a little bit of money. Just keep your mouth shut. That happened. Then they brought in the aggrieved parties and they said, Hey, look, here's the deal. We got rid of the problem. Um, and here's, here's a check. Yeah, are you, are you okay with the way that we handled this? And here's a little, you know, reason yeah. to make you not talk about it. Can we just put this to bed? Can your lawyer sign here? And we'll just, and, and again, this is, we have no idea. I mean, it could still be playing out in, uh, in some sort of civil case. I don't know. But, um, I do. I heard that it was potentially maybe a former world champion was involved in this, and um, well, and more than one, more than one of the female surfers on tour. Yeah, and 
the you don't want to say the names. I don't want to say the names either. And I've heard these names, by the way, for more than a year, maybe two years about kind of some of these rumors. And the reason why I don't want to mention the names is because that's their story to tell. You know what I mean? Like if yeah. it, if it if it is true that they did experience that, then it's for them to vocalize it and to tell their version of the story. I don't think it's fair to say their name on air and then because I don't even yeah. know if it happened and I did not hear the story. Yeah, we don't know everything that. we're saying. Everyone's just, it's all innuendo. Everybody's just kind of trying to, we're grasping at straws, trying to tell the story. And that's why it's one of these best stories never told things, yeah. you know, like it, it could be a good story. And I know there are uh, other stories that would fall. And I'm sure that Sam and his editorial staff are, have already, you know, attempted and are attempting to excavate which ones make the list, which ones make sense, which ones, um, are approachable. Yeah. And of course, the older the story, the better, the easier it is to tell. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's stories out there. Um, I've got a couple of things to recommend to people in terms of watching. Did you watch Bryce Young's film, Follow the Following the Fall Line yet? No, I apologize. I haven't. I've seen the clips that you've put out. And by the way, I'm hearing great things about the podcast you did with him. I, I want to watch the film but I haven't been able to. It's phenomenal. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I know it sounds like hyperbole. Just take my word for it. Watch watch the first five minutes and see if you're not hooked. Um, yeah. The other thing that I'll recommend for listeners to be aware of is Amazon Prime actually did a reality show series with five surfer girls in Hawaii. And that's in fact the title of the piece. It's Surfer Girls Hawaii. And they're, they're releasing it as a season. It's episodic, but it makes me think that there could be a season two that maybe is Australia or elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. I've watched one episode of it and it's interest. It's a, it's kind of a cheesy reality show documenting these five surfer girls in Hawaii. It's, I, I don't even, to be honest, uh, I should have written their names down. Um, it's Pua DeSoto, Dwayne DeSoto's daughter, it's Moana Jones Wong. Um, and there's a couple of others who I was not familiar with prior, but, um, uh, there, what, what struck me about this, it documents them surfing in Hawaii during the winter season last year. That's kind of the premise. And when I say it's kind of a cheesy reality show, it does things like put them on the beach at sunset with the cloud, with the mountains in the background and the sunset happening and make them discuss their relationship with sunset facing the camera, you know, so it feels there's elements of the production and the interview process that feel cheesy and forced. But yeah. I think that it serves a purpose. Like this is a pullback behind the curtain for these girls competing at this level in a way that I think is just uh, valuable to have because the WSL and these other entities haven't actually done these kind of foundational storytelling so I like that it's foundational storytelling. I don't think it's particularly insightful or particularly um, uh, like super compelling surfing that they're showcasing or anything like that. It's a pretty glossy view of what these girls are going through, but I think it still is valuable to have. And I think that Amazon Prime is the right platform to kind of tell these broad stories for the broad public. Um, but one thing that struck me about it and that I did really appreciate about it was how freaking smart and intelligent these girls are. These are young girls that are in high school. They're great surfers. 
They are super marketable from a brand standpoint. They're beautiful, all that kind of stuff. But they're just really, really well-spoken. I did not expect high school girls to engage me in that way, like intellectually. Mm -hmm. And so while I wasn't kind of captivated by radical surfing and these deep, insightful storytelling that maybe we got with the Grant Twiggy Baker thing, I was engaged by how intelligent they were. Their ability to articulate what they're experiencing as young girls in Hawaii surfing at sunset and stuff like that is what I was most compelled by. Well, one thing I've noticed uh, is that generally teenage girls are way more mature as far as their ability to uh, articulate and wordsmith and to give their thoughts than than young males uh, that are 18. Yeah. (laughs) It's been my experience. I think that's- Because I have a daughter and she's- She's just, um, you know, all her and all her friends are like, wow, these girls are emotionally intelligent, you know, or the kids are like me. They're like, hey, bro, what's up? Yes, sir's killer. I think that's <laughs> totally boys. true. And, and I, that's what I kind of, maybe that's the juxtaposition that I felt with the cheesy production of it. The cheesy production made me anticipate like, oh gosh, I'm going to have to yeah. like sit through this for 45 minutes. And then as soon yeah. as they got the cameras on the girls and the girls were communicating, I was like, oh. I mean, I'm in. These girls are very interesting, very articulate, way more kind of uh, going on than the cheesy, glossy production, I think, allowed them to explore, you know? Yeah. Hold on for just a sec. My dog's gone. Okay. All right, Scott Bass, quick reminder, Trees Wax, petroleum-free surf wax sourced from rocks and trees. It's got everything that you love about your favorite surf wax, except it's petroleum-free. Why wouldn't you use it? Yeah, I use Trees Wax. I love my Trees Wax. It's great for the earth and great for your surfing experience. And you can meet Christian, the owner, at the Boardroom Show uh, October 7th and 8th. So swing by his booth and say hello and pick up a sample of his wax. Go to treeswax.com or get it from a local retailer. I'm going to shout out three. Surf Hut in Imperial Beach, Toes on the Nose in Laguna, and Central Coast Surf in San Luis Obispo County. All stock it. And then also waterwaystravel.com. Whether you're planning a trip for a year from now, whether it's with your family, or maybe it's just for the upcoming storm that is developing for next week and you want to do a strike mission, waterwaystravel.com has you covered. Hey, you know what you need to do is check out the Southern Hemisphere. As soon as the next little flare-up happens, you want to go to Waterways and book that Chicama, that boutique surf hotel at Chicama. That looks insane. I know, David, you and I have been threatening about going there. And um, man, oh, man, perfect left. Why wouldn't you want to go there? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no joke. So Waterways got you covered. Every level of luxury and accommodation, whether you're going to kind of want to just camp out or be on a luxury yacht, Waterways will have you dialed. So go to waterwaystravel.com. Don't waste your time and money with a real possibility of getting skunked. Just rely on the experts. So waterwaystravel.com. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. 
Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I've got a hard out here. All right, let's wrap. Um, What about Sean Manners? Did you watch the Sean Manners thing on Stab? It's pretty good. I did not. I um, take a peek at that. I've seen all the the clips that they're using to promote it on Instagram, and I'm like, wow, that kid's an incredible surfer. And then I get on the internet, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't want to. Honestly, like, I'm not nearly as engaged in that as I would be watching the Bryce Young thing again for a second time. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, look. Um, before we leave, I want to tell everyone that the Boardroom Show is presented by U.S. Blanks. It's coming up October seventh and eighth. We're honoring Bing Copeland, and it's the entire surfboard manufacturing industry. All the best craftsmen, shapers, designers under one roof, offering great deals on surfboards, wetsuits, and gear. And we have exhibitors coming from Brazil, Italy, Australia, Hawaii, New Jersey, Florida, and uh, of course here in California. Again, smoking hot deals on surfboards at the largest surfboard marketplace in the world. With the upcoming El Nino season bearing down on us, David, October 7th and 8th is the time to buy your fall and winter sticks. So, uh, Boardroom Show, Boardroom International Surfboard Show presented by U.S. Blanks. We were out in North Carolina last week and Corbin Surfboards, who's from the Outer Banks of North Carolina, is flying out to participate in the Boardroom Show. That's exactly right. How crazy is that? Yep. Is he so he's building boards in North Carolina, shipping them out for the show the whole nine? He's gonna he's driving them out. Oh wow. Yeah, isn't that cool? Super cool. Cool guy. Rich Corbin, really nice guy. Super cool. So everybody will be there. Don't miss it. By the way, thanks to all the guys that, that came to the meetup. That was fun. I know. Um I want to say Mike, right? Was it Mike, Rob. Um look at you. I mean Rich. A bunch of people. A bunch of people showed up. I know, I just up. can't remember all their names. No, a bunch of people showed of course, up. Jason. I mean, going into the meetup, I was like, this is, the Outer Banks is pretty far removed. Uh, it's uh, pretty isolated, you know? So how many people are actually going to make the trip down or live locally that are listeners? 
and a bunch of people showed up. So huge thank you to all of you. It got blown out by a <laughs> by a weather event, though. This incredible storm came in from the sound with like 45, 50 knot gusts no and it just torrential downpour. And it just like the entire thing just got shut down within 45 minutes. And it was not in the forecast whatsoever. All the guys who live there, whose job it is to forecast this stuff because there's kite surfers that they're sending out and stuff like that. Um, it was not in the forecast. It came out of nowhere. It was sunny one minute wind and rain within two minutes. That was like you said, torrential have, we were eating dinner. We had these heavy plates. They weren't light plates, heavy plates flipping over, flying across the restaurant. <laughs> My kid, Austin screaming his head off. Lauren runs him upstairs. She didn't even want to take the elevator. Cause she was like, the elevator could get shut down. Like we're taking the stairs to get back to the safety of our room. Um, and so we had to cancel the event. The event went for 45 minutes or an hour. And then at that mark is when the weather blew in. And what was crazy is we're like asking the experts, how long is this going to last? Should we hunker down or maybe like come back down in 10 minutes? They're like, no, the way this is, it's going to last. 20 minutes later, it was sunny again. And we watched a beautiful <laughs> sunset. <laughs> and, that was cool. And in fact, a tornado touched down yeah. an hour north of us and somebody's roof got blown off from that. Yeah. So yeah, pretty crazy. Totally crazy. But yeah, huge shout out to Real Water Sports for hosting us, preventing providing a world class experience. Absolutely. Good stuff from Rip, uh, Trip and Jason and Travis and Trevor. The whole crew there was great and uh, appreciate them helping out. Absolutely. And Matt too. Matt. Yeah. Matt really helped out too. Amazing event. So anyway, David, good show, right? Uh, until next time. Adios and aloha.
don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.